everyone, and welcome to the 29th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. This upcoming interview is um, with my buddy Stratton Davis. I met him through social media and a few of the other guests that I've had on my show, so Germinal Van and Michael Hoffman. Uh, go back and listen to their interviews, but we've been talking on social media for the last few months and really been enjoying a lot of the stuff that these guys put out. There's one more guy that I want to get on from the group, but Stratty, he has a lot of interesting articles, a lot of interesting headlines, some controversial stuff too, but when you actually read the articles, there's some valid points in there, some great arguments, um, and a lot of philosophical principles that I agree with. So I figured I'd bring him on, talk about him, and also introduce you guys to Stratty. I think he's an up-and-coming voice in the Liberty Movement, and he also is the host and co-host of two other podcasts, um, Insurrection Inc., and then the Law of Liberty, I believe. Yeah, Law, Law of Liberty podcast. He's the co-host on that one. So he's super interesting and only 19 years old. So I think that he's got uh, a lot of potential. This conversation was super fun. Um, We talk about a lot of topics ranging from foreign policy to the civil war to animal rights. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is. Well, Stratton Davis, welcome to the show. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you, Liam. Yeah, so um, I've been familiar with you for a little bit now. We are in the same group chat, uh, but if you want to just introduce yourself, give a little bit of a background for the audience, that would be awesome. Yeah, my name is, uh, as you said, Stratton J. Davis. Uh, I'm only 19 uh, years old. I've been involved with the Liberty Movement for about two years now. Um, Really, I'm just going to school down here in New Mexico. Um, I'm from New Mexico. I've really gotten into writing since last December and podcasting since this January, uh, just trying to see what I can do and what I can bring to the Liberty Movement and how far I can uh, push it. So uh, really not much to me just yet, but uh, I'm working hard, so there will be a lot to me in the future. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm 20, and I go to school at the University of Montana here. Um, and oh, yeah. to be honest, I think that the – Liberty movement is really young and I think it's super, you know, there's a lot of energy behind it. You, you registered for the Libertarian party, right? Yes, I am registered with the Libertarian party. I don't know, uh, how much long, I mean, I'll stay registered with them. I don't know how much longer I'll keep my membership with them, but yeah, yeah. I'm the exact same. And you, you got into it kind of with the Tom Woods, uh, Bob Murphy kind of movement, right? Yeah. The Mises caucus is actually what kind of drove me to join the Libertarian Party, really. Um, so I worked for the Republican Party of New Mexico my senior year of high school, and I just kind of did it as a thing to kind of pad my resume. Um, but eventually, though, they offered me a paid job, so I took it. But when I took that paid job, I also started getting involved with their little meetings and such. Yeah. And that's when I realized, like, oh, man, uh, I'm not a Republican. Like, if I, like, my principles and values are for liberty, uh, and freedom for all, right. Then why would I be a Republican? So I kind of, uh, took a, took a step back and was like, okay, well let's evaluate all these different ideologies and look into it and see what I really am. So, you know, I, I looked into all kinds of people, but once I found, uh, Ron Paul, I mean, wow, I was immediately hooked and, you know, Ryan Ron got me into individualism. Uh, but Ron Paul, he sold me on libertarianism as an ideology. So that's really what pushed me to that. And, um, 
you know, the, the real reason I just joined the Libertarian Party was I saw the Mises Caucus. I saw what they were doing. Um, Ron Paul endorsed them. I really liked what they uh, were looking to try and implement, the plans that they tried to put forth for the LP. Sadly, uh, you know, Josh Smith lost. Right. Um, and from that, I, my hopes for the LP have dropped dramatically yeah. uh, i'm not going to write them out yet and uh even if i leave the party as a uh pays doing member i'll still support them from the, the sidelines i mean I, I would consider myself an anarchist but uh, i like to take the rothbardian point of view and i think we should uh, use all the political tools available to us so i think the lp is perfect for that reason but they have a lot of things they need to strain up on yeah that's that's really interesting um i was going to ask you about kind of where you like how this developed and how your beliefs developed is was it yeah. did you was it all just personal research or did you have any classes that kind of accompany accompanied it or um it was mostly yeah i would say it was all pretty much personal research but i had some teachers in high school uh, my history teacher and english teacher i would talk to them about these ideas you know i talked to my history teacher about ron paul because he was also a big politics guy and he really liked ron paul yeah. so uh, we talked about that quite a bit. And then my teacher, she's the one who gave me Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Nice. And that book has been uh, very influential on me. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, it was all through personal research, reading my books and stuff. But it was also a lot of asking other people uh, lots of questions and just even people online. Jeez. Uh, I mean, I mean, as much as I despise internet at times, I'm very thankful we have it in yeah. our generation because I've, I've been able to learn so much uh, from just so many kinds of people I probably would have never met right. uh, without the internet. That, that's the coolest thing is kind of like, you know, there's been this push to like, you know, free education and everything like that. But the internet has basically provided everything that we could have asked for. Like, if you if you have yeah. the discipline, like you can get a full education within, you know, like it, it, it's crazy. Well, I mean, one of my favorite lines to tell people uh, how to explain to people how much I despise public school education is I learned more uh, in my own bedroom reading books on my own than I ever did sitting in any classroom. If I ever learned anything in any classroom, again, it wasn't what the teacher was teaching me. Right. It was through the questions I was asking, the people I was talking to, or the thoughts I was having about what we were supposed to be learning. But uh, no, you're exactly right about that. And I wish more people would look at the internet in that way rather than look at the internet and kind of invest into it with these negative things, such right. as people who just put their whole lives out on social media. And, you know, obviously I'm not against using social media. I use it all the time. I, I, I try to make a libertarian post every day, but yeah. you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, use the internet to find your personality. You should use the internet to rather yeah. find answers to questions. And again, like I said, I wish more people would look at it like that. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you said you were, before we um, got on the phone, you said you were reading a book. What are you reading right now? I'm reading, um, Okay, I'm reading Black Nemesis by Troy Southgate. Um, I'm really into African history, and uh, this book's about Thomas Sankara. Oh, sweet. Um, yeah, so I've been I've always been interested in him, and he was the president of Burkina Faso whenever mm. Upper Volta had their revolution and became Burkina Faso. So I've been learning. Uh, I've been reading that. Uh, it's, it's it's okay. It, nothing yeah. special. Uh, this is kind of a primer on who he was and what his ideas were and what he tried to do. 
And then I also started this one today. I'm not too, only got like a chapter in the Freedom Under Siege by oh, Ron Paul. Sweet. Uh, it's really interesting because this is from his uh, first presidential run in 1988. Um, so it's cool to see, he. well, one, nothing's different. He's been consistent the whole time. The only thing that's different is what was going on at the times. Right. So it's cool to see. Because when we, when we think of Ron Paul, we usually think of 2008, 2012, and everyone who listens to this podcast will probably know what issues were going on in 2008, 2012. Yep. Well, not everyone knows what issues were going on in the 80s. So that book's been really cool to read so far for that reason. Yeah, was he uh, was he just as like, um, was he always harping on the Fed back then too? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's the reason he got into uh, politics. The whole reason he ever ran for Congress was Nixon took us off the gold standard. Right. And he saw the Federal Reserve was going to start printing a lot more and what that would do to our dollar. And he was right. I mean, yeah. I, I started listening to his podcast about a year ago. And man, if he did not just hit it right on the head, like it, it has been really crazy. Yeah, if you if you want to talk more about um, your philosophy, you said you were an anarchist. Um, I think I've only had two other people on the show who have actually identified as an anarchist. Do you want to kind of break down like how you came to that conclusion? Okay. Um, so how did I come to the conclusion of anarchy? Okay. Well, I'll give you a little story. Yeah. So like I said, I read uh, Ayn Rand, fell in love with individualism. And then I read Ron Paul and I fell in love with uh, libertarianism. So the ironic thing is I had, uh, I bought Anatomy of the State and I read that and I became sympathetic to the ideas of anarchism. But at the same time, I was like, this is so stupid. <laughs> this is dumb. And you know, I, I, uh, I never thought I would uh, find myself being an anarchist. So yeah. about a week before, a uh, week before I graduated from high school, my girlfriend takes me out to lunch. And as we're sitting down, we're talking about Ron Paul and all that. And I just I just randomly blurt out, man, anarcho-capitalism is so dumb. It's yeah. so stupid. And I could, you know, I will never follow an ideology that dumb. And my girlfriend, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but she became deflated by what I said. <laughs> and only to come to find out a week later uh, for my graduation gift, she got me against the state by Lou Rockwell. No. So <laughs> I uh, read that the next week, just kind of, you know, I was going to read it regardless. I wanted to learn, but I just kind of read it thinking like, oh, I'm going to find out just how stupid this thing is. Yeah. turns out that book blew my mind and it changed my whole like point of view on everything. The, Lou Rockwell was able to explain why the state no matter what good intentions are put into it, will always take a uh, take a mile when you give them an inch when right. you try to compromise your liberty, and that's why you should never compromise your liberty. So I realized anarchism is the only way where uh, people, no matter how diverse, no matter how different they are from one another, um, as long as they are respected through the non-aggression principle, which I mean is you know don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. As long as that is respected. And that is the axiom in which society is based upon, which in my uh, ideal point of view, I don't think that could happen anywhere but in anarchist society. Yeah. Um, if that is respected, everyone will be able to live the way they want to do. And uh, if we go even further and we apply uh, full free market capitalism with property rights and everything, um, then even better. I have my own piece of land where I do whatever I want. You have your own piece of land where you do whatever you want. And whether we like each other or not, we're both happy. Right. And even if you can't afford land, 
go out and homestead it. Um, that's, a, you know, a lot of people knock capitalism because, oh, you don't have the money to do this. You don't have the money to do that. You don't necessarily need money. You can acquire skills throughout anyhow, just a certain practice. Yeah. And then those skills can translate into money when someone needs those skills. So in uh, my idea, oh, well, before I, yeah, divisional labor too. Divisional labor, like I just said, it, it perfectly resembles why, you know, not everyone's the same. And the divisional labor gives everyone a chance to kind of have a spot in society where they can uh, function and be rewarded for what their skills may be. So uh, when you take all that and you round it up and you realize you, you put a bureaucratic order or a one size fits all over that, well, that kind of negates the whole idea of letting these things naturally flow and letting people do as they wish as long as they don't harm one another. Right. Therefore, we shouldn't have that one-size-fits-all government. We should reject it, and we should embrace anarchism. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, the communities you live with it need to be anarchists. It's just that you need to be anarchist in the sense of you respect the individual, you respect the community, and if you don't like it, just go your own way. Right. Uh, so that's kind of how I came to that conclusion. Yeah, the way the way I've kind of explained it to people is like, you know, I I would mu- like love to live in a society that's fairly if if I were to associate with people, I would live in a society that's fairly conservative, like value-wise, you know, I I even understand the sentiment behind, you know, um, having police or like a protection service, but you know, if that's forced upon everyone, I just don't understand especially when you value when the valuation of things is much different so like with foreign policy for instance there are people who have certain religious values yet their taxation is going towards certain things that they don't support you know it's like it it doesn't make any sense to me um especially when the republican position is you know freedom and freedom of association i don't i don't really understand how they can come to that foreign policy position you know um, yeah, and I would, you know, and I agree with you because I also come from a, I would say, a culturally conservative uh, point of view. And I'm glad you mentioned foreign policy because that's probably my favorite uh, subject to focus on other than central banking. Yeah. And uh, you you hit the nail on the head there when you said freedom of association and how America treats that. It's so funny um, how, like, if you look at our history little uh, groups, little countries like Iraq, they were our friends up until they wanted to disassociate with us and get their own little power. And we didn't like that one bit. We didn't care about the Kuwaitis. Uh, We didn't care about what was going on in Kuwait. Uh, We cared that Iraq pissed us off, uh, showed that they didn't need America to do what they wanted to do. So we went and we took care of them. And um, if you look at American history, all of our uh, enemies were once our allies. Right. And it's we don't allow them the freedom to associate with who they wish. Right. Um, or nor do we really allow them to do as they wish. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I haven't done the research into it myself, but um, I would be curious to see. Um, I mean, well, obviously, we know any country that has American investments has American interests tied yeah. to those investments so i would be interested to see the if we could pull up any data of anyhow and see the countries that do did get investments from america but then 
also pursued their own self-interest and see how that worked out. Yeah, that's, that's And I'm willing to bet it didn't work out too well. <laughs> that's that's really good. Well, yeah, before we get into for, foreign policy, I just want to um, explain the idea of like voluntarism or uh, freedom of association even more. Like yeah. even for these Republicans who are in favor of like strict textualism through the Constitution and stuff like that, um, I just don't understand why they don't embrace the actual text of the Constitution that literally provided a system for this voluntary association to go on. Like, I mean, in no way should New York be following the same exact policies that Montana is, you know? And it, I mean, that's literally what was set up in the Constitution. Every single state was supposed to be a laboratory of democracy. Everyone has rejected it, except, you know, um, Democrats when when they find it convenient to pull the Tenth Amendment out on Trump or something like that. But that's pretty. Yeah. But now to get into um, your foreign policy, you you wrote about Lebanon. Uh, Do you want to talk about what went down and kind of your positions on that? Yeah, so um, I'm not. I don't know too much on the full subject. I kind of have a. I, I I learned about it through learning about the issues that was happening with their central bank, and then uh, in uh, June of this summer, the protesters they barged into the uh, central bank of Lebanon after um, hyperinflation had yeah. uh, taken had, had set in, and they burned it down. So that really caught my interest. And so I started looking into what was going on in Lebanon, only to find out that uh, anti-government protests of this type have been going on since October. Um, so I, I, I looked into it a bit. I wrote an article about the central bank burning down. And I, I kind of said uh, to Americans, you know, we don't need to go burn down our central bank, but we should look at the spirit of these people and realize yeah. uh, the same problems they're facing are the problems we're facing. And if we want to do anything about it, we need to basically handle it the same way they did, except to do it peacefully. And what they did was after they burned down the central bank, yeah. uh, they embraced alternative currencies such as cryptocurrencies nice. that the government cannot track uh, or um, hard commodities such as gold and silver. Rather, though, um, I, I looked into their barter system that they've kind of adopted now. So on Facebook Marketplace in Lebanon, People are trading like workout equipment for food or uh, car parts for movies, stuff like that, uh, which is interesting. Um, So, you know, I I kind of stopped looking into Lebanon, but then when the explosion happened, I was immediately like reeled right back in. And, uh, you know, when it happened, you had people that came up with their little conspiracy theories. And I would I would consider myself a conspiracy minded person, but I didn't I didn't think there was anything malicious behind that yeah. explosion. It's, and when I did the research, and I found out that it was more due to government negligence when they right. should have been doing their job and keeping the uh, sodium nitrate. I think is the what the element was called, whatever. Mm-hmm. But they they should they, you know when they neglected their job and didn't keep that out of the factory. Um, and we saw what happened when the factory exploded. So when I found that out, um, and then I saw the protests that were happening because of it, I immediately started looking into all this research and uh, found out that Lebanon, uh, in the middle of their economic problems, had tried to seek investments from China. And so I I wrote an article this last week, and I talked about how 
they were making mistakes while also doing some things right in their pursuit for um, getting their liberty back from the government. Yeah. And in the article, I basically said if they want to get their liberty back from the government, they, they need to stop avoid. They need to start avoiding the mistakes they're making and basically have an end goal in mind, put an aim to what they're doing. So, truth is that article came out today, and today's Tuesday, August eleventh, and. Uh, when the article came out, as soon as it came out, I found out that the le- the government of Lebanon had basically surrendered. All the members have resigned, and the people have basically won. So I was a little embarrassed yeah. that the article came out because I typed it up four days ago when none of this was clear and they were still seeking uh, parliamentary elections. However, I think the what the the info in the article still stands, and I think the lesson in the article still stands. So. Uh, no, read the, read both of those articles. They're on the Cot Report. Uh, it can happen here, and how it can is the first one, and then the second one is uh, Lebanon and Lessons in Liberty. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, link to those below too. Yeah. Uh, and no, I mean my my, my interest in foreign policy uh, didn't start with Lebanon, of course, but uh, Lebanon has been my main interest in 2020 for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, I actually had, I I think I kind of knew about the central bank i think i actually learned that through you um do you know if the people of lebanon actually understand like was there a huge movement for sound money or what was the basis for burning it down just anger do you think they actually knew like the principles behind you know why hyperinflation was going on i think they definitely so no, I don't think they knew the principles of why hyperinflation was going on, but I think they could recognize that the problem with their money was coming from the people who make okay. it, and that's the central bank itself. So I think they recognized that fact and then took action against the central bank. Um, now, as for adopting sound money, I didn't do I didn't do too many research on that to yeah. see whether or not like people in Lebanon have already known that uh, things such as cryptocurrencies are hard commodities would translate into more value than the Lebanese pound. Um, I would not be surprised if some knew that. And I also, I would I would bet that most of them um, just kind of embraced them uh, because they were kind of like, well, screw this, I don't want to use this, so right. I'll use this. Because everyone, you know, there's a lot of people that use this. So I think that may have been their thinking. Um, However, whether or not they knew it, I think naturally they'll come to realize it. Yeah. I think many of them have. So uh, the lack of knowledge, therefore, I don't think I don't see it as an issue. I would rather say they need to learn as they go. Right. And they need to recognize what they are doing. They need to recognize why it is why it is and capitalize upon that. Right. Um, do I think many of them will? No, we're human beings. We're ignorant of what uh, goes on around us most of the time. But I do, I'm a very optimistic person and I hope at least some recognize that and go on to teach it. So, right. no, I, I mean, that's my thoughts on that. And I don't, you know, I, I, I can't say that's completely true because like I said, I, I didn't do too much research into that myself. But I'd be curious to see um, whether they knew that or not. Yeah, or, yeah. That, I mean, that's just super interesting point anyway that like the lack of knowledge doesn't even really matter because i mean there are market signals right like i mean even as the dollar goes down here like people are moving towards gold even if they 
may not understand what's happening. So like these people are selling off gold, even though like today it hit a seven year low or like drop and um, people don't realize that, you know, it's probably going to keep going up anyway. So, um, but yeah, I mean, what uh, before Lebanon, what were some more foreign policy issues that you were focusing on? So I got into foreign policy growing up. Um, I come from a military family, mm-hmm. um, not my dad, but my grandfather. And he was in, he was in Vietnam and I always kind of had an interest in military history. However, I never quite understood why we were ever in these wars. Yeah. And every adult I seem to have asked never really had an answer. And I never had a chance to really talk to my grandfather enough, but I always knew he hated the war and he despised the war and he wished he had never fought in Vietnam. Um, so, um, when I first, when I learned about Ron Paul and then he was able to basically explain so simply why our problems exist in the Middle East and how we're not helping ourselves by being there. It's like a light bulb went off right. in my head and I started looking at every, uh, foreign, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Intervention. Foreign little escapade yeah. that America yeah. had gotten into. And I started to realize that all of them were pure BS. Mm. There was no reason for America to ever really be involved in any of these foreign entanglements. And I was still like kind of cold warrior at the time. So I'd kind of justify some, like I would say, oh, Grenada was fine, but no, yeah. it wasn't. None of, none of these invasions are fine. And, and none of the, our foreign entanglements have been fine. Uh, and so, my, my first foreign policy interest, I guess what you could say was the Middle East. Yeah. But the first one I really dove into was uh, the cold, looking into the Cold War. I started to recognize that, you know, they call it the Cold War because no fighting ever broke out. But if you look at Africa, if you look at Africa, Africa was practically a proxy yeah. World War Three during the Cold War. And uh, I started looking at those countries. So like uh, Burkina Faso. Um, we didn't really have much foreign policy with them, but I looked into them. And then Angola, I looked into our foreign policy with them. It was so, it's crazy, the Angola Civil War. So basically you had Jonas Savimbi, who was a socialist, but was opposing the MPLA, who were backed by the Soviet Union because he didn't want everyone to be ruled by uh, one socialist totalitarian government. But then eventually he gets backed by the U.S. because he needs some help. And it just turns into the U.S. and the Soviet Union's battle. It's no longer Savimbi's war. Yeah. And uh, that's not just true in uh, Angola. That's true in almost any country America was involved in or Soviet Union was involved in right. at that time. So I would say Angola was my first one. Nicaragua was a huge one I was really into because I got really into the history of the Contras and the Sandinistas. Yeah. And that was another one where... I went into it as a cold warrior thinking, yeah, the Contras were good guys because they were backed by America and they were anti-communist only to find out really there were no good guys. Yeah. The, you know, the FSLN, the Senanistas, they were bad people with bad intentions and the Contras were just as bad with bad intentions. And it was kind of looking at these issues and saying, well, they're neither side is right. These people just wanted to be left alone. Right. Hey, there's the answer. Libertarianism, <laughs> like it's literally leaving right. people alone, their liberty. Um, and not making, not forcing them to embrace something, which is what they are doing with war. Um, so those Nicaragua and uh, Angola, those were like the first two countries whose histories I really got into that kind of pushed me into loving foreign policy as yeah. much as I do now. Yeah. Do, do you pay attention to anything um, pre-World War II or 
were you interested in World War II and World War One? I? I was really interested in both of those wars growing up. Um, I can't say I've looked into many American things that were yeah. going on. Uh, that in that sense, before pre World War II, I do look into a lot of things that have been going on with other countries, such as um, I got really this summer. I learned a lot about like Lawrence of Arabia and how he was basically betrayed by the British uh, people, even after he made promises to all the people in uh, Arabia. I forget. I'm sorry. I can't think of which country mm-hmm. it exactly was right now. I'm a little tired, but yeah, you're okay. He made their promises to them that they would have their own land, um, which would be Palestine. But then the Ball Four Declaration basically robbed them of that promise and gave, um, you know, action or gave forth the right, uh, quote unquote, for Israel to step in and become their land. And, uh, you know, that I've been learning a lot about that. Um, I've been learning a lot about how um, Europe, they go, you know, the colonization in Africa in the 1800s and how that's affected them up until this day and how that didn't really change. And it kind of got worse with a new face when the Cold War came. Right. I've been learning. I've been learning a lot more about that, which I guess you could call pre-World War Two. But no, I would say mainly my interest is. 1950s onward yeah i'm really into the contemporary things uh i do I'm a, I'm a big history buff and i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from history yeah however absolutely. i think because i'm trying to go out and, and and get as many people as i can to join the liberty movement you got to use contemporary examples to kind of put a little spark in their mind because that they'll better understand that so i kind of stick to more contemporary uh, yeah. issues and things contemporary history then do you kind of like subscribe to the idea that you know if we wouldn't have gotten into world war one hitler wouldn't have even existed oh totally i yeah 100 percent yeah uh buy into that idea yeah because i mean that's the biggest thing you know if you if you say that you are totally against all these wars they'll they'll bring up world war ii but (laughs) we we can both agree that World War One basically set the set the terms for World War Two. So, yeah, and I and I can see why people they you know they they would bring up World War Two because they don't really have the insight or the foresight to see that there was bigger problems that led to World War Two, and one of them was our entrance into World War One. So I can forgive them for that. Right. Uh, but I am thankful for people like you who do have the knowledge to yeah. understand. No, we haven't had any reason to be in any of these wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's my biggest issue other than getting rid of the Federal Reserve and getting rid of central banking totally. We need to end all these wars. Yeah. Because um, once we end all those wars, we cease to be an empire. And the reason we have all the problems we have now is because we're an empire. Right. Um, the Soviet Union fell because it chose to be an empire. Yep. And if we don't if we don't stop being an empire very soon, we're going to crumble the same way the Middle East did, which is in the Middle East. I mean, I, I do think I mean, it's the Middle East. I'm sorry, the Soviet Union. We're going to crumble the same way the Soviet yeah. Union did, which is in. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's pretty ironic. Obviously, that was part of our tactic in during the Cold War. Right. Was to kind of bankrupt the Soviet Union. Um, and I, man, I don't know who made this argument. It might have been Ron Paul about. Osama bin Laden, like part of his intention was to basically bankrupt the United States and, you know, like making us spend all these mo- all this money in the Middle East. And 
I mean, are we not doing that right now? So, yeah, I, th- I think it's super interesting. But since you are kind of interested in the central bank issue, um, you also wrote an article on the current crisis right now titled, Have We Not Had Enough? Do you kind of want to yes. explain um, the motivations behind that and what you talk about in that article? Yeah, so, I mean, through the coronavirus um, lockdowns that have been going on, we've been recognizing that, you know, slowly and slowly, but surely more and more, our liberties are being taken away. Um, you know, at, at first it started with, uh, you know, two weeks, flatten the curve, stay inside, don't go anywhere, cancel your plans. And then it turned into, oh, uh, you're no longer going to go, re- you're not going to return to school. You're doing all your work online. You can't see your friends in, in person. You can't uh, learn these things in person that you took in person to, you know, because you have to learn it there. Uh, and then, oh, you, we, you, you can't go play your favorite sports anymore. I, in my hometown, they, I'm not sure what they did in Montana, but they took down the goals. No way. Uh, what? Some areas. So kids want to be able to go play basketball. And to me, that's ridiculous. And, you know, this is happening more and more and more. And uh, right now we're fixing to go through, well, we already are in a recession. Right. And uh, we have these things, we have these things that DC wants to put forth in front of us that will only hurt us more. And so I kind of, I kind of recognize that. And I looked at the situation we're in. So I took two, two things that are happening right now, uh, basically economy wise and kind of tied them to how the coronavirus is, uh, you know, uh, basically helping make these things happen. Mm -hmm. And the first one was war. Um, Right now, you know, uh, we're in a huge trade war with China and also the Trump administration has not been uh, the best of friends to Iran. And um, China and Iran just got done doing a big deal on both oil and uh, military aid, which Russia is also involved in. And uh, while that's been happening, this whole coronavirus thing has been happening where we're printing up all this money. Well, well, if that trade deal, our our dollar stopped being used in those foreign markets. And uh, especially with uh, US, I mean, not US, Russia and China. So in the past, our dollars made up for more than 90% of their trade deals. Now it's less than 50%. And, with what China has done with Iran is they've basically given Iran the support to be able to get around U.S. sanctions and also mm. become the oil king in the Middle East. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia, they may be it right now, but they're going to go down here pretty soon with what kinds of uh, benefits Iran now has. And um, so I, I recognize that one. And, the you know, the coronavirus is obviously pushing us towards that because my two theories are, one, Trump is going to see this and uh, say, okay, he's going to think this can get me elected. And right now people don't like him and he wants to get elected, right? So he's going to, you know, people love a wartime president. Yeah. They're going to vote for a president when we're at war. So I think Trump may want to induce that for these for those reasons. I also think that neoconservatives in his administration, they want to consolidate the power uh, through the president like they did with Bush and like they did with Reagan. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, they are, I think they are going to try and, you know, the same thing, what they try to do with Iran the first time. I think 
but they're going to change it up and they're going to make it fit the situation we're in. And they're going to tell Trump, look, we're, we're America's, we got economic problems right now and people yeah. need money. War means money. And we're going to create jobs through this war. And I feel like that's just going to have Trump thinking, uh, let's, let's fire the trigger. Let's go. Yep. Um, now, my second scenario, and I think this one is far less likely, and it's a little ignorant because I've had people uh, re- re- um, have good rebuttals to this that I kind of understand, but I'll still put it out there because I think it's worth saying. Um, right now, we're, I think, $16 trillion in debt to China. And with at the rate our dollar is diving right now and with how it's holding up in foreign markets, our dollar is fixing to be practically useless everywhere, yeah. including here. And once that dollar uh, crashes totally, and I mean crash, as in no, there's no going up from here. Yeah. When it when it's that, I, I do believe that China is going to come knocking our our door wanting to get paid, um, and they're going to have their buddies Iran and Russia on their side, and the countries that we've been going around uh, making mad since we are little escapades in the Middle East, the Middle East. Um, they're going to join their sides too. Yeah. These little third world countries with the rebels that hate American troops, they're going to join their side and they're all going to come to America. Yeah. Or they're going to come to American bases in foreign countries uh, and they're going to they're going to yeah. wage war. Right. And uh, that that that's a real uh, fear of mine. Now the second thing that is uh, kind of being uh, propped up and pushed more and more because of this coronavirus hysteria is Fedcoin. So right. Fedcoin is basically a cryptocurrency that is going to be introduced by the Federal Reserve. And they will set up a special account with people where they can basically send you a set amount of money right to your wallet on demand. Yep. Now, on the surface, without any kind of economic understanding, that sounds great. You know, like you can just have money just <laughs> sent to your phone and it's yours. That's awesome. Yeah. But what people don't realize is that when they do that, they are destroying the dollar. Now, the Federal Reserve already destroys the dollar every day when they print money. Mm-hmm. Now, think about how bad this is going to get when they don't even have to print the money anymore. They can just create it digitally. Uh, we are. I, I truly believe that if FedCoin is introduced, not only will that be financial tyranny in the sense that all people's transactions will be kept up with and it will be used against them and politicians are going to start using this info to uh you know basically keep goods or services uh from being bought that they disfavor for their political reasons uh which is really money reasons right (laughs) Uh, or but um fed coin not only is it going to lead to complete financial tyranny we're about to see hyperinflation of the dollar of the american dollar yep. and it's going to be and i mean hyperinflation um you know i it's always tough making these kind of predictions and i'm you know if I, i'm sure i'll be wrong because we never know yeah i also want it uh bet against the idea that in the next five to ten years the u.s dollar will crash completely yeah. Um, I, I, I do stand by that. I, I hope I'm wrong because yeah. um, if I'm right, we're gonna there's gonna it's gonna be terrible. It's gonna be terrible for everyone, especially our future generations. So I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But if FedCoin is introduced and if this keeps going on and if we're put into another war, the the end of the empire is coming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
your your second theory about um, Iran and uh, China and Russia, I think that that's actually spot on and that's incredible foresight. I think especially with our trade war, how ignorant it is because, I mean, basically we are benefiting from the trade from China. I mean, the way that trade works is basically like you trade imports for exports and we don't produce anything. China doesn't buy anything for us. We basically get from us. We basically get their products like for for free because we're not sending them anything. They have a bunch of US dollars that they're not able to spend because we don't produce anything here. So are they going to just buy up businesses or are they going to tell us that we owe them? And I think I think you're spot on, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would I would hope rather uh, them buy businesses than yeah. tell us they owe them, but American businesses don't mean anything to them, like you just said. Yeah, especially uh, when we're in a pandemic, right? Like, Yeah, so no, I, I, I think they'll come over here and tell us we owe them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think, I thank you. Uh, thank you for saying I was fought on with that because you are the first person to say that that's a really credible idea I have. Yeah. that is in these circles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's, it's scary though. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you actually, to move away from that, you have some more uh, interesting articles that I've, I've looked at. And one of them is about the North being wrong in the Civil War. <laughs> mm-hmm. can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? I think that that's a very interesting headline. And when I've shared that around, people are like, what? But I mean, yeah. Obviously, both sides were wrong, but can you explain? uh, Yeah. Oh, well, let me preface it with this. Uh, That was not my title. My title was originally War Crimes Committed by the Union. Uh, I can see why that title was chosen by my editor. Uh, (laughs) Damn you, Cotton. But anyways, he took that title. The North was wrong, and I do believe the North was wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think the South was right. No, I, I don't think the South was right. I think the South... Um, was right to secede because that was their right. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm an anarchist, and I look at both uh, both the Confederacy and the United States, the Union at the time, as being two states that both existed separately from another one another, while one state, the Union, aggressed upon another, the Confederacy. However, both states were oppressive states. Right. And they harbored oppression, so I can't support either. However, I can say my sympathies lie with the civilians of the South, not the not the not the Confederate soldiers. Um, but my sympathies do lie with the South, and that's because when you when you look at the when you look at the facts, if you're gonna if anyone's gonna sit here and tell me that slavery was the reason the Civil War was fought, uh, I, I'm sorry, I can't accept that answer. Slavery is a terrible thing, and no, slavery should have never existed in America. Yeah. And uh, it's it's definitely a black mark against this country's history, but the, the, the fact is, slavery was already on its way out. It, it was no longer making any sense economically for the people of the South, and with all the tariffs being put on uh, upon them by the North at the time, they basically needed more efficiency, and they weren't getting efficiency from slavery, and uh, they needed efficiency. So a lot of them were going away from slavery. At the, in fact, I believe like less than 5% of people at the time owned slaves in the South. And then when you, when you look into how some of these slaves were treated, yes, some were treated terribly. Some mm-hmm. were, uh, some slave owners were monstrous. But then you also have slave owners that like in South Carolina, 
um, they were uh, taught to read and write. They could go out and participate in the local economy after they got all their work done. Um, and no, I don't. I don't like that they were basically shackled up and yeah. being told what to do before they could be let free. But like, it's funny. Uh, I think it was Rousseau, and he has a book, and I think it, it's called Democracy in America or, or something. But he says about how in the North they treated black people much worse than they did in the South. Yeah. In the North, white people wouldn't even work next to black people, but in the South, blacks would work next to whites. Now that's not, like I said, it's not an excuse for slavery, but it's obviously something we're not taught in school. Yeah. And go even further, yes, the South had the right to secession. That that was their right. And um, they were aggressed upon at Fort Sumner. Right. Um, basically it was a Gulf of Tonkin situation where we were, uh, that's not we, I'm not a part of the Confederacy, <laughs> but where the Confederacy was kind of pressured into taking the first shots we're not exactly sure what went down that day yeah but um and then you look at the fact that lincoln suspended habeas corpus he locked up journalists he locked up a congressman um he he in the emancipation proclamation uh slave states in the north uh were allowed to keep their slaves while not a single slave was freed in the south um the emancipation proclamation was nothing more than like, hey, look at what I can do. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it didn't mean anything. It didn't do anything. Right. Um, and then you see, like, Lincoln was micromanaging the military at the time through Sherman and Sheridan. And uh, he was basically telling them, hey, go ahead, burn down these cities, burn down their means of economic prosperity. Uh, go ahead and make, and, you know, he even okayed the rape of. Uh, women in the South, not all, not just um, white women, but yeah. also those slave women. And they, they went through and they tore down these slave quarters. Some of the, the, the only places that these people had ever known to be any kind of home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, me and you, I think we can both sit here and agree that uh, slavery is a terrible institution that should be torn down, but you should not be lose your sense when you're trying to tear down an institution and go against the victims themselves, which is what yeah. the the union did while also going against just complete innocent civilians in the South right. that were neither fighting. They, not, they didn't own slaves. Um, instead, they just happened to live in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I think that the U S foreign policy we see today was birthed from what the union did in the South back then. Dang. And in fact, um, you know, Hitler's, uh, the, you know, Hitler's army, Stalin's red army and the U S army or U S militaries of today, they have adopted the military strategies of Sherman, uh, that Lincoln. Okay. And so we think those are monstrous tactics that are used and they're barbaric and they should be cussed as such. So why don't we cuss Lincoln for doing the same? Why don't we cuss the union for doing the same? Right. And obviously the answer is because uh, it's not politically correct and it's uh, going against what the cathedral wants us to espouse. Yeah. And uh, it's to to tell the truth today, you will be cussed so much. Yeah. And when that article came out, I got a lot of negative feedback. and it was all people who didn't even read the article because right. if they'd read the article, they would have seen that I acknowledged that, 
you know, the Confederacy wasn't perfect. I, I said in that article, they burnt all their records of war crimes. We don't know what the Confederacy did. Yeah. Um, and I, I said slavery was a, was abhorrent. It was disgusting. It should have never existed. Right. So obviously they never read the article. Um, yeah. So I, I disregard that uh, criticism. I'll say this, uh, and this is the first place I'm kind of saying it publicly. <laughs> the other day I looked up my, I get curious sometimes, and I like to see where my article's been shared on the internet. I did find the neo-Confederate outlet, which is using that article as one of their resources for learning oh. about why the South was right in oh, all regards. No. <laughs> um, I do disavow that. I don't, I yeah. don't, uh, uh, I don't want to affiliate myself with neo-Confederate groups. Um, yeah. Now groups like, uh, I don't, you know, I don't care what anyone wants to do with their uh, cultural choices, but when I saw that, I was a little bit like, Ooh, uh, yeah, please, please don't hopefully, share that. Hopefully no one big ever sees this, right. but I'm, I'll, you know, I'll come right out and say it. I got nothing to hide. Yeah, absolutely. To see. I, th- I mean, I think the, the biggest teller right there was that you, you were willing to say that they were both states. And I mean, the fact that you're an anarchist, you can't, su- you cannot as a voluntarist support when the Confederacy mandated slavery on every single state in the South. You would be against yeah. that because you're a voluntarist. But for yeah. some reason, you know, because the victors write the story, the victors write the story of the war, we can't critique the North. That's all we're saying. We should be able to critique both. But yeah. you can't even say anything bad about Lincoln. Not one thing. Yeah, I mean, and it's the same thing. Like if you try to critique what the U.S. did in Dresden at the end of yeah. World War II, we didn't kill any Nazis when we bombed Dresden. We killed, if anything, we killed nothing but innocent people and maybe some U.S. soldiers that were POWs at the yep. time. Like Kurt Vonnegut was there. That's why he wrote the book Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then the uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think that that I mean, that's the biggest teller that it was not about slavery. Um, and yeah. the fact that, you know, Lincoln wanted to send all the slaves back to what, what's it called? Liberia. Liberia. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest teller is like as soon as it was politically convenient for him to do so, he did it. Um, well, and also Lincoln was a lawyer for 23 years, never represented a freed man. But he did represent a slave owner, yep. and it was to help him get his slaves back. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think, man, the Civil War is such an interesting topic because basically we nationalized slavery, right, through the Fugitive Slave Act. And then mm-hmm. people who are in favor of states' rights say, well, hey, Wisconsin basically served as this free state for people to, you know, they nullified the law and they allowed states to or slaves to flee to Wisconsin. So there's plenty of examples where, you know, states' rights have actually served in the opposite of what they would like people to believe, you know? Like, it it actually does much better, you know, rather than serving as a top-down solution as the South did by mandating slavery across the entire South. um, You can have free states that allow people to free to, you know? Kind of like the sanctuary cities today. Um, my university, uh, my college town um, in Missoula, they, they're a sanctuary city. I mean, that's a form of, you know, like just being your own. I mean, that's voluntarism in, in action, whether or not you agree yeah. with the policy. So, but yeah, I mean, that's, man, that topic really gets me fired up. <laughs> um, Same here. I, I could talk about that stuff all day. Yeah. And, and what I th- find interesting, are you, are you familiar with uh, 
um, Lysander Spooner. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there were plenty of Northerners who were in favor of secession because Southern states held slaves, right? Like, I believe William Lloyd Garrison, I think that that's another. Um, They totally. I I recognize the name. Yeah. They totally were pushing for secession because they didn't want to be associated with states in the same union that held slavery. But no one talks about that. Well, one of my favorite parts of the book, the, uh, the Real Lincoln by Thomas DiLorenzo was he has a collection of headlines and articles from northern newspapers that supported secession in the South on a constitutional basis. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to see when the narrative and the media changed and why it changed. Because you kind of learn, you come to learn that, you know, nothing's changed. Right. Uh, technology is only advanced. Uh, the words have changed. The faces have changed. But it's all the same. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I know we're kind of going over the time that I usually do. But you have one more article that I want to talk about. Um, I actually didn't get to read this one. Uh, but it's titled Animals and the Non-Aggression Principle. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm super curious. I don't – I didn't get to read it, but I'm, I'm wondering where you stand on that. So basically in that article, I state that, you know, animals are – they can't have rights. I don't, I don't believe animals can have rights because um, if – you know, how are we supposed to delegate them or them rights? Like yeah. a, uh, what rights does a dog have that a cat doesn't have? What rights does a lion have that a – bear hat doesn't have you know yeah so um i kind of went with i so i went off that idea and then i i started applying it to different uh things and i basically came up with the idea of animals you know they don't have rights they're they can only have rights as pieces of property so if you care about an animal own them yeah uh but also there's another, you know, it's a double-sided sword because if people own animals, then they can use those animals for whatever reasons they wish. Yeah. Um, and I, I did make a justification in the article for things such as blood sport um, between animals. And I think that's a terrible thing. But here's the thing. Um, because of all these economic regulations and legislation in the place um, to supposedly help minorities, um Instead, it kind of hurts them. And yeah. in a lot of places, especially on the east coast of America, I know um, a lot of minorities get into the, the things like dog fighting because it helps them make money and it's a lifestyle they know. Um, that's that's sad, but that wouldn't happen if we didn't have all these this legislation in place. Um, but you know, it, it, I'd rather those people. Um, make their money through fighting animals than fighting other humans. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I wrote this article after reading Defending the Undefendable, which is probably my favorite um, Austrian economics book yeah. by Walter Block. So I, I kind of wanted to, you know, add my own little thing to it. So I made that article. Um, man, when that article came out, the all the kind of crap I saw for that one. Really? And it was, again, it was people who never actually read the article and they, or they maybe read it and just saw that line where I justified blood sport and yeah. attacked me for that. Um, one of my favorite things was I remember uh, someone on Facebook had sent screenshots to me and someone 
went through my Facebook profile, found all pictures I took with like my pets around my house. Oh no. And posted them and said like this, I feel so bad for all these animals because this yeah. terrible person who wrote this disgusting thing. And yeah. you know, uh, people were just trying to say I justified uh, animal abuse. No, I didn't. I, I took a logical uh, perspective on something and gave it a logical conclusion right. that I think is very reasonable. And that's the animals only have rights as pieces of pieces of property. If we were to grant them rights the same way you and I have rights, how how are they supposed to respect those rights? And how are we supposed to communicate to them yeah. how that they are, you know, they're aggressing upon our rights? Yeah. So if I shoot, uh, you know, an animal uh, because he's aggressing upon yeah. my rights the same way a human would aggress upon my rights, if I say, like, you, you take my property. Like you just take like uh, this pen from me. Okay, like yes, that's a, a, a violation of the non-aggression principle, but I shouldn't be able to kill you for that. Yeah. So when an animal does something like that, where do we draw the line? Right. Uh, you know, that's a uh, it, it's hard to make the crime proportionate to the, or the punishment proportionate to the crime with animals. Yeah. So I think it's the really dangerous slippery slope if we're to grant any kind of animal, any kind of rights. Yeah, and I mean, because where does it end? Where do I, we draw the line? Yeah, and I think that there's actually a point in there that's actually super humane um, towards animals. So the biggest thing for me is there is so much neglect, and I, I, I've never really spoken about this publicly either. I think I made a few tweets about it, but no one, no one interacts with them anyway. So um, <laughs> one, one of the points that I've been so fascinated about is all these in, endangered species um, that are basically left to just die alone because of nature and natural selection, you know? I mean, the bison, right? The bison count, basically, they were they were this close to being extinct, right? And then yeah. private ownership was allowed. And I mean, if you drive anywhere in Montana, you're, you're most likely going to see a bison. So yeah. what did you write about that in the article? Yeah, or what, I, what I, uh, I didn't eat actual stuff such as the bison in Montana, but I did bring up that philosophical point where if you care about these animals and you love them so much and you want them to live, why don't you own them? Why don't you uh, take them away from the places where they're not owned, where they're going to be killed by other animals, where they may starve to death, where they may be hunted uh, by poachers or such. Why don't you own them if you care about them so much? Right. So I'm really happy you brought that up because I was gonna I was gonna bring it up. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh shoot, I need to get that out there. Yeah. Really happy you brought it up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it because man, I am an animal lover. Like I will I will watch okay. YouTube, dude. I will watch you YouTube videos of animals for hours. But like, it makes me so sad, and a lot of it's for personal reasons. Like I, that I can't own koalas and like. <laughs> like take care of them dude like like man they're just left to die and then you know there's certain like australia has authority w- about whether or not i can own one and it just it doesn't make sense because basically like with poaching laws they're they're causing the unintended consequence of these poaching laws is basically that you know elephants get killed and no one can protect them literally no one can protect them in africa because you know people are hunting elephants and what what are you to do and i mean and what's kind of funny is like how you just named how some governments completely outlaw the private ownership of these animals well what do these governments do when they're faced with the quote-unquote problem of these species going extinct yeah 
they give a group basically <laughs> private ownership yeah. of these animals to help them repopulate. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny to me because it's like, why do why do my tax dollars need to go to that? Right. Which I may not necessarily agree with. Like, I'm an animal lover, but at the end of the day, am I losing any sleep over some species going extinct? No. Yeah. So why should my tax dollars forcefully be taken from me and go to that when someone can, uh, an animal lover, can privately buy two of those animals and, and repopulate the species yeah. on their own. Yeah, and it, I mean, I think the argument would then be, you know, well, there are some people who are incapable or it's inhumane to own these animals because they should be free. But like, you know, when, when I look to uh, dogs, for instance, like the best Lysander Spooner quote, I think is, um, the actions of others do not affect, or the act, my rights do not depend on the actions of others. That's, that's how it's formulated. And basically, so how many times do you hear about an abuser of a dog? Um, would you then, would the would the next step then to be say, well, none of us should own dogs? I Like, that doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like, yeah. it's a net benefit that people can own dogs, both to, to us, because we can benefit from that relationship, but also the animals themselves. So... I'm, yeah, I'm super fascinated by that subject and I haven't done a lot of research on it. It's more just an idea and I was wondering if you had thought about it. Oh yeah, it's, it's an idea I think about a lot actually. Yeah, awesome. I, well, I kind of want to write my own defending the undefendable one of these days. Please, please do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, if if you want to um, finish up here, if there's anything else that you uh, want to tell people and if you want to explain, you're on two podcasts, right? Yeah, if you want to just tell people where you're at, um, share all of those sources, and then, uh, yeah, just say anything else that you want to say. So I'm most active on Instagram. I'm at Stratty Shrugged, like Atlas Shrugged, but Stratty, my name, Shrugged. Um, I'm on there. That's where I'm I'm mostly on. Uh, So if you really want to interact with me, uh, hit me up on there. I'm on Twitter, at Stratty D. And then I'm on Facebook at Stratton James Davis. Hit me, uh, hit me up on all three of those. I'll interact with y'all when I can. Um, I'm on, like you said, I'm on two different podcasts, Insurrection, Insurrection, which is where like it's halfway serious, halfway funny. Um, we have these, we have great discussions about things, but we kind of put some jokes in there. The way I like to explain it is it's our way of bringing these ideas to the people in our generation in a way they can appreciate and both uh, both appreciate and easily digest them yeah and then we have the law of liberty podcast which uh we just started we had an episode published today um but that that started because me and a friend we took judge andrew napolitano's class at mises u yeah and uh we had a lot of great discussions he's he's a law student david hoffa he's the other brilliant guy he's the other host um he's a law student going into his final year and I, I recognize that he had a lot of great things to say and also teach people about because, I mean, I'm smart, but I'm all I'm not a big brain like most people are. And I don't I'm not able to fully digest all these concepts and uh, convoluted language all the time. So I basically came up with ideas like I told him. Okay, so how about we do this? How about we start a show together where you basically run the show, like you talk about these topics that regard the law, you know, legal uh, stuff, um, but coming at it from a a libertarian point of view. And how about I be your co-host and basically the the audience can learn through me. Because if you listen to the podcast, yes, I have a lot of answers. Yes, I have 
things I like to talk about. I do have my thoughts on things. But there's a lot of things I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't make any bones about that. I'll ask David, uh, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. Or can you put this in simpler terms? Or uh, he'll explain something complex then ask me, do you understand that? Uh-huh. And I really like that kind of a, a concept because it, it's, again, it makes makes it easy for other people to learn yeah, that's these awesome. great ideas simply like we had an we had an episode on a argumentation ethics i didn't know anything about argumentation ethics and that's simply because hans Hermann hoppe is hard for me to read yeah when in reality argumentation ethics is the most basic thing to understand and i really kind of already agreed with it all along i just didn't know it because i didn't understand the concept but that was a great episode because I learned so much. Yeah. And it was just fun to sit down for it. So I, I please go listen to both of those podcasts, you guys. Um, we've I've gotten a lot of great support and encouragement from doing those two podcasts. And thank you, everyone. But most of all, uh, please go check out the Cotton Report, uh, not just my writing. Like, please check out my articles. And please, I really appreciate that. I love it when people read my stuff. But check out everyone else's stuff. You know, Porter, uh, Burkett, uh, Jay, uh, uh, May Fangani. Uh, Cotton himself, he's got some great articles. Um, David's going to put some stuff out there. Please check it out. Uh, Cotton Report, it's it's great. And I think it's going to be the next big thing when it comes to libertarian uh, news. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you guys have kind of like served as this hub for other libertarian news, right? Like you'll repost yep. some stuff from like anti-war. Yeah, it's like a news aggregate, basically. Yeah. It's like the it's like a libertarian slash anarchist drudge report. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it, Stratty. It was awesome talking to you. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, and I'll send you I'll send you it when it gets up. Sweet. Awesome. See you, man. Cool. See you, brother.